0: A warm welcome to this, the latest edition. It's episode four now, I think, of Are We There Yet? The 2022 podcast series from Project Edward. My name's James Luckhurst, and in the next little while, we'll be reflecting on behaviour change with regard to the speeds we choose as drivers. Here to help me are two highly experienced professionals. First, Elizabeth Box. You're very welcome. Tell us a bit about you, Liz.
1: I'm the Research Director at the RAC Foundation. The RAC Foundation is a transport policy and research organisation. We explore the economic, mobility, safety and environmental issues related to roads and their users. I'm responsible for commissioning and disseminating our research in all areas of of transport policy and I manage our programmes of research and activity as well.
0: And also Detective Chief Superintendent Andy Cox. A quick intro from you too Andy. I'm a Detective Chief Superintendent, I'm the Head of Crime
2: uh, for Lincolnshire Police um, but I do have a national responsibility around fatal collision, uh, reporting to our Chiefs' Council within policing. Um, I also nationally lead on road crime reporting, again reporting to Chiefs' Council for for Police um, and previously I was Division Zero lead for The Met working in London to have a background in roads policing.
0: let's now consider the national road environment against a background that might include the COVID pandemic, reduced traffic volumes, significant cost increases and a year-on-year 7% rise in fatalities. So help us make sense of all of this so we can drill down to what actually matters. Liz Box first.
1: Yeah, I'm sure, James. I mean, I think we're all acutely aware a huge amount has happened over the past two years and that's definitely impacted on our national road environment. I mean, we know that... During the pandemic, traffic levels plummeted, so as a result of, you know, stay at home and minimise contact regulations. So um, some interesting research has been done since that shows that, um, you know, sadly, with a reduction in in traffic, there were actually higher levels of speeding seen amongst some drivers um, during the pandemic. So straight away, we could start to see that there were some impacts on on road safety and environment i mean i think since all of the remaining covid restrictions were lifted back in in february there have been some lasting changes that have been noted so some of it's you know, it's really difficult to get real time uh, traffic stats but what we know is since late march that traffic uh, road traffic was found to be 10% below Pre-pandemic levels, particularly during weekdays, and this is because we're seeing more people home working. They're getting uh, things delivered to their houses, and and their habits are changing. So, there there is an indication also that there's been a, a reduction in car ownership. So, there's there's an indication people are, are walking a bit more as well, um, not just for leisure, for some sh- short trips. So, these sort of focus on living uh, sort of local living, I suppose, has become a little bit more common um so obviously none of these changes are, are are set in stone people think that this is going to be the way that things go going forward particularly in terms of where things are with business and um as you said in your intro there we we've got this current cost of living crisis inflation is now at a 40 year high um and 41 percent of people questioned in a recent ipsos mori poll said that the cost of living was a concern to them. It's it's now costing millions of families over £100 to fill up their cars at the pumps. So people are going to be making really serious choices about when and how they travel. And obviously, that's going to start impacting what we see on the road network.
0: Andy Cox, you were prominent during the pandemic when there were some really shocking road safety violations recorded. As we move on from those dark days, perhaps you can reflect on any learnings for a better understanding of road danger?
2: I think fundamentally, whether there was a pre-pandemic, during pandemic, and post-pandemic, we still have a you know, we still have a significant challenge around the whole road danger agenda. I think people are very complacent around it. I don't think drivers generally think anything will happen to them. I don't think they're um, they're very complacent. Um, there's a selfishness um, that's borne out in some of that, um, and certainly during the pandemic, as you you said, we saw speed really intensify. Um, and when we stopped people, there was a real um, perspective that they didn't think they would see policing there to stop them. So they felt able to go about a day in speed, essentially, and, and do more extreme speed than they would otherwise have done. But I think that's maybe a reflection on the challenges that policing has in terms of being visible for, ro- for on our roads, which is why we're pushing so much the road crime reporting agenda for, for the public to be part of the solution. Clearly policing on its own can't solve road danger We're just one part of many cogs in the wheel that need to prevent road danger and, and address that issue of around about, well, over four people every single day dying on our roads in the UK. Um, so I think there's so much we can do. You know, There's a massive need for policy debate around things like speed limiting technology, you know, 20 mile an hour zones to tackle speed in what our enforcement and, uh, sorry, our um, sentencing processes for that because I honestly don't think the harm that extreme speeders and speeders in general cause is in any way in any way comparable sorry to the other harm that's caused in crime and the sentences are very different so you've got potential for an extreme speeder to kill and devastate lives um, but I don't think that's reflected in the sentencing options and the enforcement options available to us so from a policing perspective we'd certainly like to see more tactics available to us and really push the whole agenda of you know, and speed through a whole range of um, facets, really, not just in the pandemic, but post as well, because we've certainly seen that trend continue.
0: Well, does fast driving cause collisions? What percentage of collisions are caused by fast driving?
2: I think there's there's so much to debate in that, really, and I, it needs, a, you know, a real considered approach. And I'm really pleased, obviously, Liz, the work that this does, will really dig into this. From my perspective, from an enforcement ratio, we see some absolutely outrageous speeds where... I remember my team stopping somebody for 163 miles an hour at tea time in London. Um, That person got a 56-day ban. They'd previously been banned before. Um, And I think the risk that individual posed was so extreme and so significant because if they go around the corner and they meet stationary traffic, you're probably looking at mass fatality. Yeah, a 56-day ban doesn't reflect in any way the harm that they pose communities and other road users. And if if it was any other type of crime... I reckon they've got a very substantial sentence. So if somebody was suddenly wielding a knife, for example, I think that being treated very differently. So I think we need a culture mindset change within the communities. Um, and that cuts across every aspect, because t- to my mind, there's an entitlement, people have, feel they're entitled to drive. And that is borne out by the very short suspensions and disqualifications people receive for that significant risk. That's an absolute choice for that individual to be dangerous and reckless to other road users and themselves. And that, As we say, more than four people every day die. That is coming down, Um, if we were to look at numbers from years and years ago. um, So there is some good news in that, but it's still an absolutely unacceptable and devastating number. And it has very significant impacts on communities and families that obviously I meet daily, to be fair, (laughs) across the UK. So I think there's a policy shift in terms of legislative sentencing we need a mindset shift in terms of culture within driving across the uk and that's then borne out in every aspect but i also look at things like for example that individual drove away their car after we'd stopped them why have we not got the power to seize that car so there's some tactical options we can introduce to send a really strong statement to people that drive in the manner that i've just described and i'm talking about extreme speeders here but there's also for speed in general yeah i'm a supporter of 20 mile an hour which is taught And Liz very articulately talked about the cost of living, you know, fuel, et cetera, et cetera, and how people might travel differently. But we've got the active travel agenda, where we know there's a real strong mandate now for people to cycle and to walk more than they use the car. Um, And I think the work led by Chris Borden in terms of active travel will really come to the fore in the coming period. And I think there's got massive benefits, hasn't it, socially, to mental health, physical health, Yeah, all aspects around environment and and air pollution and so on, but also huge uh, benefits to reduction in road danger because undoubtedly danger comes from drivers rather than, for example, Cyprus. And that's often the debate put forward, but undoubtedly the statistic will bear out that fatal crashes predominantly involve a vehicle. So I think there's benefits in terms of road danger, congestion, and all the other benefits we talk about. So we need to be ready to support that. And I think things like 20 mile an hour um, Zone would help that, that agenda as well.
0: Liz Box, we've talked about behaviour change. Will this occur naturally if policy is correct and there are adequate levels of enforcement?
1: Yeah, definitely and completely agree with Andy that it's about taking an overall sort of package approach. We need to take that safe system approach and obviously speed is absolutely crucial within that. But sort of taking the behaviour change bit, just for a moment, I mean, we have to remember that behaviour change is really hard. And we know from examples of our own life, in our own day-to-day lives, where we might decide, for instance, oh, I want to take up a regular exercise regime. Um, But our intentions might always feed into our actions. We might say, well, what might hinder us? We might be feeling tired. The weather might be bad for a run. Um, our regular scheduled class might be cancelled. So if we've got these sort of roadblocks in our way, so to speak, we, we'll get knocked off course. And the same is the case for drivers when they're thinking about managing their speed. So we know when we look at the research that people typically fall into two broad categories. So there's those that make errors. Um, so they might not have spotted the speed limit, they might have momentarily stopped paying attention to the speed. And then those there are those that are violators, so those that are really not concerned about the speed limit in the first place. So I think, you know, for that second group, um, visible and commonly present enforcement is absolutely vital. Um, because, you know, for the first, it's much more about supporting people with the tools and reminders they need to help them remain law-abiding, uh, safe members of the travelling public. Because so, we know that when, uh, you know, when drivers can take control of their journeys, this supports their safety and comfort and provides them with the time and space to react to the circumstances that appear on the roads. And that's the main problem we have with speeding, is that it doesn't allow that time to react. And it's it's just a more pleasant experience for everybody all round. So, you know, often it's about planning ahead. You know, if someone's late and in a hurry, they're much more likely to be tempted to speed. So it's about that encouraging planning in advance, you know, making that commitment to make sure they're up an hour before they go to work or if everything fails and everything goes wrong. Do they have a plan to fall back on? Um, so can they tell themselves, you know, if then so if I'm tempted to speed, um, because I'm late or in a hurry, then I'll remind myself I'm not saving much time by speeding or then I'll stop the car and phone ahead to let them know that I'll be late. So there's there's ways and means I think that we can help the public who are generally wanting to keep within the speed limit but find but find it difficult to do so. So I suppose that's the kind of the marketing campaigns kind of education parts. But as Andy said, you know, that's only one part of the whole solution. I I think it would be really dangerous if we focus too heavily just on people. You know, we need to think about providing safe and forgiving road infrastructures. We need to make sure that we've got the enforcement in place. And we also need to make sure we've got vehicles that support people to make better decisions. So, you know, as as we discussed, it's kind of bringing all those things together.
0: Andy Cox, you were quoted in the Sunday Times back in June saying that if police forces across the country follow London and Manchester with their revised reporting, then there would be a threefold increase in speed being a contributory factor in road deaths. But surely for any of this to make sense, every force needs the same metrics or we won't ever reach an accurate picture. And it'll be that much harder to bring about behaviour change because no one will really know what to believe. Can you give some background to that?
2: Yeah, so that's, um the, the quote essentially was that we, we, so the process that we currently use, which has been changed nationally, which I'll come on to, um, is essentially our contributory factors are determined on the first assessment of fatal, in fatal crashes, and this is specific to fatal crashes, this data. So if you, if you determine your, your contributory factors on your first assessment, that, in my opinion, is not a fully informed assessment. So what we're essentially doing a shift in that assessment, the last assessment. So we will have, once we've had all the specialist investigators, all the friends at work, we've spoken to every witness we can find, we've looked at absolutely everything, and we've got a fully informed picture as a police service on what the contributory factors were in, in, in the fatal crash, and then we submit that to Department for Transport for that data um, publication later um, that normally follows um, in around the summer of the, of the following year. Um, so, And what that will allow us to do um, is clearly fully understand across the country the, the contributory factors for for fatal crashes. The work done in London would show speeding as a con- as a contributory factor in fatal crashes would increase threefold if we do it at the end point, not the first, and in Manchester fourfold. Now there's work going on between policing and Department for Transport to make and mandate that across the country. So essentially every contributory factor will be the concluding assessment rather than the the, prime, the first assessment. And I think that's absolutely right, because that then allows you to be intelligence-led um, in terms of all the work that's analytically done, all of our innovations to try and um, prevent road death, identifying right time, right place, right cause, etc. So we can really become Uh, across every agency involved, um, really innovative and problem solving based in terms of using the right data, because data matters, of course. So that's, that's the point around speed. And what that does do is that demonstrates. So for example, in London, they just published, I think data this week, which shows fatal crashes in London. This year, speeding was a course in more than half of Fatal fatalities um, linked to, to in, in, in London. So that's again being followed up this year, and I believe if we apply that approach, that will be consistent across the country. Um, but something, if I can just come back, James, and a couple of points around policy development as well. There's this thing which you, you know, and I've discussed with you before: exceptional hardship, which I am still flabbergasted that that remains an opportunity for defendants essentially to plead exceptional hardship. To maintain their license after they've got 12 points or more Um, and essentially will plead their hardship based on the impact of losing their license to them their family their employment etc etc and whilst i sympathize with that my sympathies lie with bereaved families and other road users and i think everybody's had their opportunity to learn their lesson before they get to the 12 point mark and actually you know we should prioritize safety over an individual's need so I think exceptional hardship should be eradicated. I also think there's things we can do to help prevent road death by incentivising safe driving. So, for for example, I think insurers should, re- and insurers should really proactively, and there are some that do this in fairness, but I think it should be more widespread, proactively encourage things like data trackers, i.e. black box, particularly for young drivers, and really incentivize that usage and um, where we can obviously influence people's driving through technology but also things like dash cam should be fitted as standard because again i think that's got a significant benefit to reduction in road danger through influencing the way people think and behave um, so i think there is stuff manufacturers can do insurers can do legislators can do and there's a whole range of activities of where intelligence led around the right data
0: Lizbox, we need to start uh, rounding this all up, so let's consider the theme for Project Edward 2022, changing minds, changing behaviour, and by asking a simple question, when it comes to the speeds drivers choose, what are some of the things that can change minds and change behaviour?
1: Yeah no it'd be great to be able to give a very straightforward simple answer but I think as Andy just alluded to there that there are a lot of policy options that we can put in place um, and there's lots of opportunity and we need to make the most of those but thinking around the behaviour side I, I think it's all about meeting people where they are and as I've already said you know violators need to be addressed differently to people that make errors or have a lapse in their concentration so we need to really target our our focus of enforcement on the people that actually we really need to get to. So campaigns and marketing information is all about trying to help uh, reinforce positive social norms around safe speed. Um, The more that people's friends and family members value safe speed, the more likely individuals are to place importance on keeping within the speed. So as Andy mentioned earlier, it's all about getting that that culture and understanding and, and making people work towards that. Um, You know, largely people know about the risks associated with speeding and their consequences, so I think instead we need to help individuals work through the coping mechanisms and strategies that are relevant to them, so they can help uh, focus and manage the situations they're faced with, and Andy just mentioned there the importance of telematics, because really that helps give us back feedback on what we're doing and helps remind us to, to do the right things. Um, And above all, I think we shouldn't forget that change of behaviour is hard and, you know, education in and of itself should be seen as a facilitator to the system, a bit like enforcement. It needs to work within the whole system. It can help. It can help move things in the right direction. But we need to to use all of the policy mechanisms at our disposal as well.
0: Andy Cox, and finally, just away from your day job, you do amazing fundraising work, which also raises awareness of, of road safety issues. Any thoughts on what Edward should be trying to do during the September week of action? What can we realistically hope to achieve and where should we focus?
2: Firstly, I, I know the work that you put into this and I have absolutely no doubt it will be successful. And I, I see that first hand every year you rolled it out. I think having just run a, um, I suppose, a charity event to try and raise awareness of road danger myself, um, we looked at the metrics around um, public awareness, engagement, you know, and there's a, there's a huge amount there. I think you... We're trying to beat your record James you had something like 65 million impressions we got nearly there we got, I think we had 61 million but so actually the fact that we're landing messaging we're, we're having a discussion around road danger we're making people think perhaps differently around it and we're starting to encourage and influence people's driving standards I think is a really really positive step I think the way that you will reach out to legislators to every agency uh, you know every agency connected in the road danger space is really important because you start to influence discussions. I think we are seeing some evidence of that in terms of some of the policy and I know DFT are really ramping up the whole road safety agenda and I'm hoping it will be a strategic policing requirement as well, which it, in my view it should be. So there's, there's, there's all manner of stuff that will be achieved, but fundamentally we all need to come together and this, it's not just road safety leaders, it's not just people that are interested in this field, it's everybody. has a role to play in reducing road danger so we can stop the amount of devastation in the roads because it is an absolutely totally unacceptable number. I personally believe Vision Zero is achievable, you know, because I see firsthand the fatalities that can be prevented. And I think when we've got, Liz had referenced earlier, the right infrastructure, we've got the right technology, we've got the right culture, we've got the right, yeah, absolutely right policies and the right understanding of it, achieve that we only get there through events like project edward that really promote and challenge us to think about what we're doing and and to make sure we are making the right policy decisions we are doing the right activities we have got the right leadership etc etc to bring about that change
0: detective chief superintendent andy cox thanks for that vote of confidence thanks also to liz box from the rac foundation for your contribution to today's conversation which neatly wraps up this edition of are we there yet the Project Edward 2022 podcast. Episode 5 comes along next week and be ready for a fascinating conversation on changing behaviour with Dr. Sean Hellman of TRL who'll be referring specifically to graduated driver licensing and the hazard perception test. Do subscribe, do download, do tune in and do tell all your friends as well. That's it then for this edition. Thanks for listening and we'll be here again same time, same place next
1: week. Bye for now.